Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. Welcome to the Dirt, Hi. a podcast about <laughs> hello, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna, and I'm Amber, and today Anna's going to tell me and you, listeners, a story. And I'm kind of sleepy, so it's probably a bedtime story. So gra- grab your blankets <laughs> and a mug of your beverage of choice, preferably warm, and snuggle in for story time. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Okay. Is everyone cozy? Yes. Great. So I'm going to be pulling a lot of this from a book by David King, and I won't give away the title yet because it's a spoiler, but <laughs> it'll it'll be our book club recommendation at the end of the show. I just wanted to make sure to credit the author up front because I took almost all of this wonderful story from this book. Oh, goodness. Okay. <sighs> oh, I got, she's already... Don't fall asleep on me. Is got a this whole a story? To do. Anna read a book. Mm. The end. No. Our story begins in December of 1630 in Vasteras, Sweden, with the birth of a man. I'm sorry, well, where? Um, Vasteras. Shut up. Yes, I know. I know. <laughs> it's in the north. With the birth of a man, uh, a baby, baby man, named Olaus Rudbeck. He's also commonly referred to as Olaf Rudbeck, and that's what I'll be using. Olaf was an intelligent child with a seemingly inexhaustible curiosity about the world around him. 
At this time, Sweden was one of the most powerful countries in the world, especially after key victories in the Thirty Years' War. This was a war fought primarily in Central Europe between 1618 and 1648 and embroiling most of the major European powers at the time. One of the most destructive conflicts in human history, it resulted in 8 million fatalities, not only from military engagements, but also from violence, famine, and plague. Casualties were overwhelmingly and disproportionately inhabitants of the Holy Roman Empire, most of the rest being battle deaths from various foreign armies. Out of all of this, Sweden came out more or less on top, and its capital, Stockholm, had grown rich from trade. Now I bring this up because about 20 years after Olaf's birth, he arrived in Uppsala a bustling town with a huge castle that was the seat of Queen Christina of Sweden. So other towns in Sweden, well, cities, including Uppsala, had grown very rich and were becoming centers of learning at this time. So there were medical schools, universities, and so Olaf had distinguished himself in medical school, and he had caught Christina's eye because of research he had done while in medical school. He had been the first to observe and publish on the human lymphatic system. So what was which what is, was medical school like at this time? Was it a lot of dissection, a lot okay. of um, observation of human bodies and ailments and attempts to treat things? But Rudbeck genuinely um, human dissection was still pretty uh, frowned upon at this time um, as as a taboo in general, but he did a lot of dissection um, of dog cadavers, I guess, and uh, used that as his research to find the lymphatic system, which is one of the main, it's one of the main things in our body that, that kind of fights infection or that it's an immune response to inspection, in, to inspection, <laughs> an immune response to infection. This is going somewhere. And the, and the queen was like, dang. Yeah, it was a kid. big deal. Because he published on his findings and it was really well received in and, the medical community. And she wasn't and just like, we got things that dogs got. No, because he he um, identified their presence and their function in humans. The uh, lymph nodes oh, and things not, like that. Oh, not the presence and function of dogs. <laughs> They're dogs here. Here's what they do. Okay. Bark. Go on. Okay. Queen Christina invited Olaf to her court to present his research to her, and Rudbeck successfully dazzled the queen. He was a very good speaker, and his research was really interesting, and she was like, wow. And so she awarded him a royal scholarship to continue his research. With this financial security, Rudbeck was free to let his intellectual curiosity run beyond the bounds of what he was studying in medical school. He pursued numerous oh. projects. Oh, so like yes. beyond his, he didn't stay in his lane? Is this where not. this is going? This is, is this emphatically about, where this is going. Sorry about veering out of one's lane? A little bit. Okay. He pursued numerous projects, but the one that concerns us today kicked off when another Swede, another Swede named Olaus even, Olaus Varelius, approached Rubeck with a request what? to draw some maps to accompany Varelius's forthcoming edition of a Norse saga, the Herverar saga. Um, and so Rubeck was known for his accurate and skillful illustration and map making, and he agreed to help his colleague. As he worked on his maps, Rudbeck kept happening on place names that seemed to him to bear a remarkable resemblance to places named in ancient Greek mythology. So there was a place called Glacis Failure, which that's the glittering plains, which to him evoked the Elysian field. So I'm going to read from David King's book here. 
As in the classical Elysian fields, the fortunate residents of the Norse glittering plains enjoyed a happy existence living to a great age and effectively banishing sickness from the realm. They were also, like their classical depictions, keen sportsmen who enjoyed tossing a goatskin back and forth. Who doesn't? That is, when they were not reveling in the dances, songs, and feasts along the soft meadows and meandering riverbanks. Indeed, the Norse wrestled on the glittering plains just as the classical warriors fought for fun in the Elysian fields. Located beyond Ganvik, literally the Bay of Sorcery, the glittering plains flourished in a mythical landscape that included yet other features that sounded familiar from classical mythology. There were the violent neighbors of Jotunheim, the land of giants, who recalled the Greek stories of the large, fierce creatures that waged war on Zeus and the Olympian gods. In Norse mythology, as Rudbeck would soon learn, the giants also fought relentlessly with Odin and the Aesir gods. So... Sweden's sudden rise to power after the Thirty Years' War had given folks there an interest in their past, and they wanted their past to be as glorious as the outcomes of their military triumphs demanded. So Rudbeck's ideas that folded ancient Sweden into the epic mythos of Greek legends went over great, and this was encouraging, and Rudbeck set out to do some legwork to support his research. Also, this chapter is titled, Follow the Fish! Oh, it all started when he was out investigating the old burial mounds and runic stones in the countryside. He brought along a very special instrument that would soon accompany him everywhere he went and would enable him to invent an extraordinary dating method. <laughs> hey, girl. <laughs> I want to see he, my special became, instrument. Um, mystery. <laughs> and he started he the game. The pickup artist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> To understand Rudbeck's theory, it is important to understand this method, one of the truly innovative, even pioneering results of this mad adventure. Rudbeck placed a container in his garden at the beginning of winter. Several months later, after the snow had melted and the rain had evaporated, there was a thin layer of dirt at the bottom of his vessel. <laughs> if left untouched over a period of time, Rudbeck further concluded this soil would, like the specimens he had found in his wanderings around the Swedish countryside, continued to develop everywhere with distinctions in color, thickness, and layer. And if these distinctions, presumably a function of time, could be measured, perhaps they would provide clues to the age of any surrounding monuments. So, Rudbeck hunted down artifacts, stones, buildings, any significant structures, and then put his new device, a skillfully crafted measuring stick, to the test, trying to translate the nearby layers of soil into a more precise number of years. He searched the most distant places he could reach, far away from cultivated land, since regular working of the soil upset his method. He ventured out to remote mountains, cliffs, and crags, where it was impossible for any human to live, and where he could reach only with the greatest effort. Everywhere, he examined the soil and measured the fine distinctions in its layers. So he's really one of the first people to sort of come up with the idea of stratigraphy. Yeah. Which is really important for archaeology. Um, and so he concluded from his initial stratigraphic studies, so the study of the layers of soil and sediment, that Sweden must indeed be very ancient. And his conclusions okay. about Sweden's ancient origins led him to probe into Swedish history. He started, as all historians must, with the biblical flood. Okay. So, you know, Rudbeck, is, is, he's living in the but, 1600s, and, you know, the Bible counts as a text. But, okay, so... Yes? Uh, so we're talking about Greek mythology. 
So Greek. this will all okay, come together. Fine, I promise. Okay, the Bible and the Greek mythology. So. <laughs> so Rudbeck figured that if all life had been wiped out in the flood, except for Noah, etc., etc., then two important questions must follow: How did the Earth get repopulated? And why did Noah's descendants settle in Sweden? Because oh, he reasoned okay. that. Well, he reasoned because of the stratigraphy that he, you know, he had found very, very deep stratigraphy and hadn't compared it to anywhere else. But he still determined that Sweden must be the oldest place. Um, so the answer to the second question is fish. What? So why did Noah's descendants settle in Sweden? The answer is fish, because after. They were on the ark for 40 days and 40 nights. They had limited land animals to eat, given that whole two by two thing. It's actually seven. Okay. Well, either way. But I mean, it lasted very long. <laughs> yeah. Birds Who am also. I, <laughs> I mean, all of this is Rudebeck's reasoning, not mine. I okay. feel like I should make that clear. Uh, birds wouldn't have worked out either because most of them real. would have needed food. And a place to rest that wasn't underwater. No, they were real. This is before the Reagan administration. (laughs) (laughs) And in all of that flooding, lots of vegetation would have been killed off as well. That's true. But fish, fish are good. Sweden had a lot of fish. But doesn't everywhere have fish if it's underwater? If it's all underwater? Shh. Fine. (laughs) (laughs) The answer to the first question... I mean, I know how the earth got repopulated. (laughs) Rudbeck looked at records of historic groups, ancient peoples, and asked himself, did they not settle near the water? The Greeks colonized around the Mediterranean, as Plato would say, quote, like frogs around a pond. I'm reading from the book again. The Chaldeans encircled the Persian Gulf. The Chinese gathered around the East Indian Ocean and the Scythians colonized the Black Sea. So this painted a picture of Sweden as a land that had essentially, to Rudbeck, held the cradle of civilization. Wait, I'm sorry. What? Go again. What? So his Sweden first conclusion is that Sweden is really civil- old. Okay. Second conclusion, therefore, since there are people in Sweden now and Sweden is so old, Sweden must have been one of the first places to have people again after the flood. But what about the Chaldeans and what? He determined that the people who colonized the earth again after the flood Mm -hmm. must have been doing so because they settled by the coastlines because of all of the animals that were wiped out. Fish would have been the most prevalent food source because he's reasoning, well, there were only a certain number of animals on the ark and birds wouldn't have worked out. So yeah, and evolution needed to start again. Mm hmm. (laughs) Mm hmm. So, as this chapter says, follow the fish. Okay. So, he said, you know, the Greeks colonized around the Mediterranean, that body of water. The Chaldeans were around the Persian Gulf. The Chinese were around the East Indian Ocean. I'm sorry to keep poking holes in this, but if it was just Noah at all, like, how is Redbeck? So, there are, like, multiple people, groups of people who are colonizing. Who supposedly came after the Swedes. Thank you. These ancient, ancient Swedes. So Sweden was the cradle of ancient civilization, according to Rudbeck, and all other cradles of civilization came out from there. Cool. Right? Yeah. So you're really blowing my mind here. Well, I'm really having to unlearn a lot of things I've learned over my past 31 years of experience and study. 
Stay with me. Okay. Stay with me. I'm getting There's very sleepy. So Rudbeck's next venture was to look into the origins of a people known by Greek writers as the Hyperboreans. Ah, yes. Which is under the Borean. Beyond. So the... Beyond. Beyond the... Yeah. Beyond the Bjorn. Oh, yeah. Hyper. That's right. Yeah. It would be hypo if it were. That's right. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. So these were people from the North, according to classical literature, but that North was pretty vague. But Rudbeck... He made it his project to find the Hyperboreans. Like he wanted to know who they were. And here's another quote from the book. The more Rudbeck read about the people, the Hyperboreans, however, the more familiar they sounded. Ancient travelers venturing into their lands described them as tall and healthy, enjoying great fame for their wisdom, righteousness, and justice. They worshipped outdoors in sacred groves. With flutes and lyres, laurel-wreathed Hyperboreans sang and danced praises to their chief deity, Apollo, the archer god with his silver bow who came down to visit them every 19 years. Everything Rudbeck heard and read sounded like a portrait of his northerners, the, the Swedes, a people who were building burial mounds long before the beginnings of classical civilization. So the things that Rudbeck was finding when he was doing his stratigraphical surveys of the surrounding mountains and crags. There are burial mounds in Sweden. It's just that he didn't know how old they were. He just sort of figured that the stratigraphy around them was built up so much that they must be the oldest. That was his reasoning. So one of the places that Rudbeck had visited in his quest to determine the real age of ancient Sweden was a village called Ekholm outside Uppsala. Oh, so there was two hours north and he's like, ah, Hyperborean. (laughs) Well... In Ekholm, there was an old standing stone carved with two intertwining dragons and inscribed with the word Euphorborne. So, the Greek word for Hyperboreans is Huperboreoi. I'm laughing at your Greek accent. I'm sorry. (laughs) Huperboreoi? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, The Swedish word Euphorborne and... The Greek word, hyperboreoi, uh, Rudbeck drew lines between them, reasoning that linguistically, if you took into account the fact that the F and P syllables often shift linguistically through time, that these words might as well be the same word. Might as well. Might as well. So, All right, I'm getting, I'm getting red-pilled here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so he drew this link between this standing stone outside Uppsala and the Hyperboreans. So he was finding all of, to him, this evidence that the Hyperboreans came from Sweden. You know, these were the Northerners that are referred to in classical literature. So the oldest Swedish place that Rubeck knew about was, aptly enough, Old Uppsala. So this was external to the the then modern city of Uppsala where there were burial mounds dating oh, far oh, back into Sweden's history. Oh, it's like another place. History. It's not like the mm-hmm. it's not like No, it's not the old, old part of town. <laughs> no, it's the a different district. place. No, it's not. <laughs> no, it's it's external to Uppsala. So, Rudbeck started at Old Uppsala and looked for other links to the Greek myths and the writings of Plato and Homer. In the Orizund, the waterway separating Denmark and Sweden, and a known perilous stretch to navigate, he found the Pillars of Hercules, which Odysseus had navigated. He sure did. So, 
Here's a passage from the Odyssey. By night our ship ran onwards toward the ocean's bourne, the realm and region of the men of the winter, hidden in mist and cloud. And so at this point in the story, Odysseus was traveling to Hades, the, quote, gloom at the world's end, and the region of winter, which to Rudbeck corresponded well with the lack of sunlight and brutal winters oh my God! in the Arctic North. I'm so important now. <laughs> and how about those pillars of Hercules? Okay, Amber, here. Yeah. We turn to Plato. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I read about this. Oh my God. Oh yeah. I read Critias and- when I was in, when I was a Greek student and I like would do my reading and I'd like do my lines and then I would have to ask my professor, like, did I translate it right? Cause this doesn't make any sense. And so it well, turns out there's a real difference between out- translation and comprehension. Because I was just like, what's this guy talking about? But I oh, I know what this is about now. <laughs> well, here's, Anna! here's what this guy was talking about. So we're at this point, Rudbeck has found the Pillars of Hercules yeah. somewhere between Denmark and Sweden. Yep. Um, page 107 from this book. Somewhere ah! beyond the Pillars of Hercules. Oh, lay the fabled. <laughs> the Bobby Darren song? <laughs> Somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> the fabled island of Atlantis, home of an advanced civilization that once exerted a profound influence over the known world. After rising to a peak of power, refinements, and grace, this virtual paradise soon succumbed to vice and folly. Then, in a single day and night of misfortune, Earthquakes shook the island to its foundation and sent the formerly unrivaled civilization to the bottom of the sea. Anna! This was the story, according to the ancient Greek philosopher Plato. Yes. Are you enjoying my masterful storytelling? (laughs) This was the story, according to the ancient Greek philosopher Plato, whose 4th century BC dialogues Timaeus and Critias unleashed this fantastic vision onto the world. So, Rudbeck's dive into the link between Greek mythology and ancient Swedish history had led him inexorably to the firm conclusion that the site of old Uppsala was the location of Atlantis. When he came to this conclusion, Rudbeck was understandably elated. And then this is the part of the story where Rudbeck is a hammer and then everything starts looking like a nail. Now, ironically, the area that is now or was then old Uppsala. We know now that this area was completely underwater as late as 4000 BCE because of glacial thawing. So ironically, it was in fact under he's the sea. He's not wrong. Just, he's, he's not wrong, but he is wrong. <laughs> so. Wow. There were plenty of ancient artifacts to be found in old Uppsala because there were in fact burial mounds there and it had been an active and powerful center of trade since around the 3rd century CE. We know that now, but there was no known written historical record of this for Rudbeck to read. He only had classical and his sources stick. and his and measuring his stick. stick. There was also no way of dating the artifacts the way we can now. So Rudbeck's initial conclusions to his scholarly mind and others, because his claims actually were pretty well received at first, were perfectly logical. Um, also, there was a king from ancient Swedish legends called Atle. And the first king of Atlantis, according to Plato, was named Atlas. So... This checks out. Anna... <laughs> What are you? Man, this is crazy. So regarding the king Atla, 
Um, this curious shadowy figure of the Norse Eddas, which they're like sagas, they're the historical oral records, was again, like Plato's Atlas, only dimly known. For Plato's Atlas is not Homer's Atlas, the Titan who is forced to hold the world on his shoulders. The two are often confused. So the Atlas who was king of Atlantis was not the Titan. He was just, just a guy a named Atlas. Who is, yeah. Yet Rudbeck believed Atla must have made quite an impression. Pulling out a map of Sweden, he rattled off <laughs> a like, long list of places. Look, this is called Atlas too. <laughs> I, it's a map. Exactly. Where the name of the Atlantean king was supposedly enshrined. There was Atlas Island, Atlas on the, there's two O's with two umlauts. So I don't know what to do with that. Atlas. Okay. Atlas Island on the beautiful Lake Malaren, just outside Stockholm, and also in one of the country's oldest settlements. There were also Atlas Lake, Atlas Village, and a string of other places running throughout the kingdom. Sweden even had its own Atlas Mountains, Atlafjall. Indeed, just as Plato had said, King Atlas had left his name all over the country. Most dramatic, of course, was an old name for Sweden, Atland, which Rudbeck immediately translated as Atlantis. And incorporated into the Swedish title of the book, Atland Ellermannheim. So the book is called Atlantica in its translation, but it's in Swedish. It's Atland Ellermannheim. And so this was the first of many scholars, Olaf Rudbeck, to claim to have found the lost city of Atlantis. Rudbeck's story is far longer and full of other twists and turns, but much of it consists of him making further and further stretches to jam together different pieces of classical literature that supported his claims. He became less and less credible to his scholarly audiences. His book, Atlantica, though, is still out there and is maybe the first modern source of the Atlantis mania that is still present today. So, Amber, today's episode is about Atlantis. Was that our cold open? That was our whole cold open. And now we can start the episode. Hello, and welcome to Atlantis. You should play the theme now. <laughs> deedle, deedle, dee. Okay. So what I have yeah. for you is I figured I would I would go to the people, the deems, because I figured the, the best place to get kind of a common denominator definition of Atlantis was Wikipedia. So I have for you this, this Wikipedia okay. entry. For Atlantis, so will you will you please turn yeah. to that? So this is from Wikipedia. Um, so Atlantis in ancient Greek, Atlantis Nesos, island of Atlas. Um, it is a fictional island mentioned within an allegory on the hubris of nations in Plato's work, works Timaeus and Critias, where it represents the antagonist naval power that besieges. Uh, quote, ancient Athens, end quote, the pseudo-historic embodiment of Plato, Plato's ideal state in the Republic. In, I read the Republic one time. Slow going. It is. I read Critias in Greek. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't understand it. Um, <laughs> in the story, Athens repels the Atlantean attack, unlike any other nation in the known world, supposedly giving testament to the superiority of Plato's concept of a state. The story concludes with Atlantis falling out of favor with the deities and submerging into the Atlantic Ocean. Despite its minor importance in Plato's work, in fact, I don't remember it coming up in like... Minor. Pretty minor. Yeah. Minor. Mostly it's like, <laughs> what is a man? Most of the Socratic dialogues are them being like, oh, Socrates, you're so, so great. You're so smart. I, it's like, 
Okay, Socratic dialogues are like infomercials where there's like the person talking and then there's a person being like, what? And it's just like... <laughs> Does it cut to black and white footage of someone fumbling with millions of yeah. Tupperwares? Oh, and it's that. It's me with the Liddell and Scott dictionary. There's got to be a better way. <laughs> yeah, there is. It's Perseus. Um, wow, a lot of deep cuts, <laughs> deep cuts from my classical education there. Despite its minor importance in Plato's work, the Atlanta story has had a considerable impact on literature. The allegorial aspect of Atlantis was taken up in utopian works of several Renaissance writers, such as Francis Bacon's New Atlantis and Thomas More's Utopia. On the other hand, 19th century amateur scholars misinterpreted Plato's narrative as historical tradition, um, most notably in, check this guy out, Ignatius L. Donnelly's Atlantis, the <laughs> antediluvian world. But he certainly, if he was a 19th century scholar, Rudbeck had a couple hundred years yeah, on him. Yeah, definitely. Um, Plato's vague indications of the time of events, more than 9,000 years before his time, and uh, the alleged location of Atlantis being beyond the pillars of Hercules, um, maybe the pillars of Heracles, because it's Greek, uh, has led to much pseudoscientific speculation. Mm. As a consequence, Atlantis has become a byword for any and all supposed advanced prehistoric lost civilizations and continues to inspire contemporary fiction from comic books to films. Um, also, Atlantis being an being a utopia, um, the that word means, means no, no place. place. So it's sort mm -hmm. of like there's like a clue built in. So being utopian is doesn't exist. But there's a problem here with what Atlantis has come to represent to folks and um why people want to find Atlantis and it has a little bit something to do with advanced civilizations from 9000 years ago so yeah um i th i think there's a couple categories cuz there are people who genuinely are invested in the idea of Atlantis the place and wanting to find it and then there's sort of the pop culture use of Atlantis and the two kind of are in a feedback loop with one another. Now, but... which, which is which? What are you talking about? Are you talking like, which is well, so like, there's, there's like there the pop culture. Lots like of... there's like, I read, I looked through to see, I looked through like the Wikipedia entry for Atlantis and pop culture. And I went through and I was like, wow, none mm -hmm. of this does anything for me. And it's very much like, um, like a hallmark of, of science fiction. And, and yes. it's, um, so the, the examples I'm thinking of are, you know, Aquaman, both the original comic, I think, I think he's from Atlantis, but you know, the, the movie that just came out with Jason Momoa, he's from Atlantis and he visits no, Atlantis. Jason Momoa is from Hawaii. <laughs> the character of Aquaman. I, the character of I, Aquaman is from Atlantis and in the I, movie visits Atlantis and it's this high tech underwater city, but also, in what I believe you call Stargate Jason Momoa. Oh, God. Yep. Stargate Atlantis. Again, it's this sort of yeah, advanced alien civilization. <laughs> um, um, so it, that's that's what I'm thinking of. Those are the, like, the touchstones that I'm thinking of. Okay. Interesting. I'm thinking of like, 
like steampunky stuff. That too. Yeah, there's an element to that. Okay. And so when you're talking about people who are trying to find Atlantis, what are those people to you? Are these the people that like follow Edgar Casey and like the sleeping yeah. prophet, like the the people who who are like into the idea of there being like Atlanteans yeah. and Lemurians? And Lemuria is a analogous Madagascar. place um, that exists that that doesn't exist um, in like the Indian Ocean. Mm-hmm. And it is so again, it's not populated by lemurs, as yeah, because that's Madagascar. Yeah. Um, and it's it's some it's a place that is sort of vaguely alluded to in probably a metaphorical sense, yeah, in some early Hindu literature. Um, and so it's it's thought to be the like Tamil. Atlantis. I think that's the root problem here is that these were used as allegory or metaphor in, but no one, the art, the authors who were doing this thought that their audiences were intelligent enough or at least like aware of what they were doing enough not to have to point out this is not real. It is a metaphor. Yeah. Well, and then I guess, it gets like if you write it and then you think that, years. yeah, exactly. You, they just didn't, they didn't have enough foresight to realize yeah. that. That people were going to be like, oh, death, death. Yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah. And so that's and that's where you start getting into like the really problematic stuff, because then it gets into like it's a slippery slope into the ancient aliens stuff. And Mm -hmm. like the idea is that 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 both there is this that like indigenous communities are incapable of doing stuff on their own without some kind of external civilizing force that Mm -hmm. is that built the pyramids for them. Especially if you're saying they're from Sweden. Um, And uh, I don't think Rudbeck came in contact with a whole lot of other people. Yeah. It seems like he was pretty like, I don't think he saw anything other than white people. I'm not sure, but it seems like, cause there are, Italians mentioned in this book and French people. Oh. And well, he mentions the Chaldeans, but I guess they're in the Bible. That's like Abraham to him, not like Babylonians. Yeah. yeah okay. I don't um, think he saw them as, as not white. It's a different problem for a different day. Mm. And, um, but also the idea, there's a problematic idea of there being some kind of, um, deep historical paragon. The, what do you mean can, by that? Like that there was this, there was, there was something that was like truly great. And then Uh, um, around 9,000 years ago, factors X, Y, and Z happened to make it less great. And we could get back to that if only we undo X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And it's a really, that's a problem because Mm -hmm. it never existed. And so when you build up narratives that are like founded in myth and founded in like unreality um you end up setting yourself up for big problems yeah so you mentioned Edgar Casey um yep. i i just wanted to give a little information about him for our listeners who might not know who he was did you kill a bug i got it okay <laughs> So Edgar Casey, 
born March 18th, 1877 to January 3rd, 1945. He was an American clairvoyant, allegedly, who answered questions on subjects as varied as healing, reincarnation, wars, Atlantis, and future events while allegedly asleep. A biographer gave him the nickname The Sleeping Prophet. And so some... Uh, some consider him the true founder and a principal source of most of the characteristic beliefs of the new age movement. So we can include a picture of him in our, um, in our social media when we post for this episode, because he has some piercing eyes. Uh, he's from Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So My fellow he, Appalachians. Yes. He, um, he Boy. well, so Edgar Casey was like um, he was like a the American, he was like the the American force on the the New Age front, yeah. And so he followed in like the spiritual footsteps of um, Helena Blavatsky. Uh, yes, the the medium. The, re- the repeat offender on this show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she keeps showing up along um, with Crowley. Yeah. And this idea of being a spiritual medium and and kind of uh, co-opting ancient, like just little fragments of ancient culture, ancient cultures, and yeah, like appropriating to- small, like small, uh, like snippets of other, um, like religious and literature, like literary traditions in a time that like plenty of white people like definitely weren't engaging in that and so mm. it's sort of planting these seeds that then when people who buy into it go and like look into it they're like oh, there it is and it's like well well no that's <laughs> <laughs> well like you didn't you, you didn't always... find like corroborating evidence you no, found you just found what you were looking for yeah <laughs> but you know casey's clients included a number of famous people woodrow wilson once president of our alma mater, Thomas Edison, once Irving president Berlin. of our country. <laughs> yes, I know. And um, that's his other achievement. And George Gershwin. Oh, yeah, they were into it. So yeah, he he claimed to have psychic abilities and to be able to oh see the the past of Atlantis and things like that. So yeah, because he was able that. to um, he he purported that he was able to um, access this like other plane mm-hmm. on which he could see like the the past and the present and the future, and he could channel these yeah. beings um, and entities. And I'm pretty sure he started out like as a like Protestant minister. Well, that the ability to convey beliefs to large numbers of people clearly what? was that was in his wheelhouse. Um, so there are a lot of um, historically proposed locations for Atlantis other than Sweden. That's actually one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this story. <laughs> also, because oh, Rude, Rude 40 minutes. Really character. Yeah. <laughs> but no, just but also um, what I had always come across was that Atlantis was somewhere in the Mediterranean, right? So this idea of Atlantis being, you know, in the in the far north, uh, that was really interesting because I hadn't really heard about that. But I do remember um, in the first archaeology class that I ever took when we first started talking about Thera, Santa, which is now Santorini, which is a volcanic island. Thera at the time was home to Minoans. Uh, or at least they lived on the nearby island of Crete 
and uh, a massive volcanic eruption on Thera left it essentially a shadow of its former self. It basically blew out the whole middle of the island, leaving kind of a crescent shape behind. And um, it probably caused a large tsunami that probably wiped out a lot of Crete. Uh, and some believe that this might have been the, the catastrophe, the earthquake, the sinking to the bottom of the sea that inspired the story. It's also been thought to be the Canary Islands, Madeira Islands, west of the Straits of Gibraltar. So maybe those are the Pillars of Hercules. The Azores? Mm-hmm. Several writers have speculated that Antarctica is the site of Atlantis. Okay. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> Antarctica is a key place in the plot of Stargate Hotlantis. Oh, my God. Uh, well, the other thing is that... It might not exist at all. Sarah? Atlantis. Yes. <laughs> it might not. Chances are it might not, despite any corroborating evidence you may find to any theory that you have. But I wanted to tell you the story of Brudbeck and his early discovery of Atlantis. So is, this is this story called Olaf's Brudbeck and the... Chamber of Secrets. Like, and the Chamber of Confirmation <laughs> Bias. <laughs> it might as well be. Oh, but there is there is one kind of nice, sort of unrelated to Atlantis fact about Rudbeck, but he was he was a really distinguished scholar um in many fields in his day, as you could be back then. And because there was just there was still everything to learn. And so you could be an expert <laughs> in like six different fields. Um uh, but the family of flowers that black-eyed Susans belong to, those kind of daisy, the that family is called Rudbeckia. It's named after him. Named after him? Yeah, isn't that nice? He's got flowers. Oh, black-eyed Olaus. Yeah, he um he took a professorial post at the University of Uppsala, kind of mm -hmm. right. Then that kind of kicked off his career, and um, he established a really large botanical garden there, and so he's also associated with sort of botanical taxonomy and that's why he had a flower named after him or at least a family of flowers oh that's very nice yeah it is nice so he is quite the character um this sort of quest for atlantis i just happened to grab this at the library on uc davis campus because it looked interesting and indeed it was so i'm glad i'm glad that i could tell that story to you and now I'll, I'll tuck you in oh yeah make sure your toes are tucked no monsters. No monsters. So, book club. Yeah? Book club. Book club. Still got to do a sting for that. The book that I, I didn't want to spoil this episode with the title of uh, is called Finding Atlantis, and it's by David King. And it's an interesting read. It really kind of weaves in all of Rudbeck's history and, and a lot of his different studies into this story of his quest for Atlantis and also the like super catty academic drama that was happening at his university at the time. Like that's also a major plot point. So it's a, it's a really interesting read and I recommend it. Yeah. Well, I will read that after I learn about the 30 years war. <laughs> yeah. I could see as we were starting to, get into that part of it i could see your face just going what yeah because just like was it because you weren't aware that the third years no War idea had no idea that like sweden was a big deal had no idea yeah. that like none of it i knew none of it like 
what? Okay, I for because I saw no your face and I and I assumed that you were. I like I'm still not convinced I, it's not the Crusades. <laughs> no, those happened like 200. No, way before that. See, this is not great. I'm really great until about 611 AD CE 611 CE in the Arabian Peninsula. <laughs> no, no, wait, when's Muhammad? Constantine? I don't know. Oh, Muhammad. <laughs> Constantine Constantine's was in like, like the 300s. 300? Well, I guess yeah, I'm not Constantine great Constantine was an, like the Roman Empire was still a thing with Constantine. Right. Who are you thinking about? Are you thinking John about Charlemagne? Are you thinking about no. John Constantine? Uh, okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> no, I might have been thinking about Charlemagne. That seems right. That's going to do it for us this week. Thank you, as always, for listening. We'll be back in your ear soon with new episodes, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and wherever else you get your pods. Um, like Megaphone. Yeah. We're on Megaphone now. That's we who are. Us. Yeah, and you can help us out by leaving reviews and stars at all those places, but especially on Apple Podcasts. Yes. And you can find us on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at at Dirt Podcast and on Instagram. No, I, I deleted at, that. I know, at I, know I, I know you deleted it, but I'm going to keep saying it. <laughs> We're at at the Dirt Pod on Instagram. And all of that is together on our website, thedirtpod.com. And you can, e- <laughs> you can email us at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. And we put out extra bonus content for our Patreon subscribers. You can get access to bonus goodies like video content for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. And we appreciate your support tremendously. Yeah. Thank you all for listening. We're almost through September, which means spooktober. It's just pre-October. Yep. Spooktember is coming. Spooktober. Spooktember. Spooktember. <laughs> it's already yeah, spooktember. <laughs> So it's September now, and then it'll be Spooktober, and I'm so excited. And then ready. it'll be Boovember, and no, you don't like okay. Boovember, December. There it is. Well, we can we can and the, work on this and the later. holidays. Okay, we're gonna oh. we're gonna work something. We got about two more weeks. <laughs> all right. Thank you all for listening. We love you. Bye. Bye. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.